You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 13 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat and Lyle, come up. I will pray for you. Lord, we thank you so much for your servant, Pastor Lyle, and for the word that he has prepared this morning. We ask that you would fill his mind and his heart with um, just your presence right now, God. You would surround him with um, just a, a heavy sense of your presence. I pray that he would hear your voice as he uses his and that we would hear from you this morning. Pour out your blessing on him and on us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Sarah. Well, good morning. It is such a joy to, uh, to be with you as part of this very, very important series. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, uh, we're looking at this word that gets repeated about 100 times in the New Testament, 45 of which are directly speaking to Christ followers in the context of doing life together in community. And the word is, gets translated, one another. Uh, the Greek word is alelon, and it's uh, one word that's translated one another. So there's all kinds of one another's. The last uh, couple of weeks, I had the privilege of being here last week, uh, Elizabeth uh, talked about Galatians, the next chapter, chapter 6, in the one another that says bear one another's burdens, and the importance of vulnerability and trust as we live with one another. The week before, Andrew highlighted the, the central posture of humility. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, said the Apostle Peter. Humility, vulnerability. So there's 45 of those. That doesn't mean this is a 45-week series, however. We're giving you a taste uh, because all of these are interrelated. And it's, it's a taste of a wonderful feast that we desperately need for the ongoing renewal of the church. A little bit of context. I, um, I'm using another word in addition to the one another's. I'm titling this, this particular sermon, the, the word attend. The word attend. Attend has been a word that the concept of which has been reinforced in my life and it's coming at me from all different directions. One of the things that I'm doing now in my post-pastoral life is that I'm chaplain at South County Hospital, uh, as well as doing a little teaching at URI. And uh, that word attend has been something that God has been using in my life to put action on awareness. It's not enough just to be aware of people's needs, to be aware of, of causes that grip us, that grip the heart of God. God calls us to engagement. And, and sometimes I can be more focused on being aware of things than actually engaging things. And so to attend, and I'll unpack that a little bit more. But this week, I'm going to be here next week as well. And, and this week we're going to be looking at what it means to serve one another and be attending to one another as we serve each other. Next week we're going to be looking at this word attend as it relates to coming alongside those who all too often in our world are facing serious 
suffering and pain. How do we make sense out of suffering? I have no claims that I will exhaust that subject. There's a tremendous mystery in that concept of what it means to understand suffering. But we're going to be looking at, at how do we attend uh, to one another. A little context of Galatians, this book, short book called Galatians. Galatians has actually been called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. It's like a declaration of independence was to our own country here in the U.S. Galatians and the book of Romans uh, were written by the Apostle Paul. And, and Galatians especially uh, just breathes out this important concept of freedom, that we have been set free, liberated. Liberated from what? From sin and death, the consequences of sin and death from the power and the, the enslavement of, of those things that leverage our own humanity uh, and take us to places where we are in bondage and we're, we're liberated. Do you all know that we are in a building that is a Lutheran church? Do you all know that? You didn't even know that. You just, just came, you thought this was sanctuary. This is sanctuary, we're meeting here, but the building is actually a part of a Lutheran church. Now who's, what's Lutheran? Mar Martin Luther. You know, 1500 A.D. launched what we call the Reformation. The book of Galatians launched the Reformation. Now, why did something need to be reformed? Well, if you look at the history of the church from its very beginnings all the way until now, the church is in constant need of reform and renewal. That shouldn't surprise us because if you're anything like me, if you've been a follower of Jesus, or if you're just searching, uh, we, we're always in the process ourselves of needing renewal. The history of the church is one renewal movement after another. And so what launched the Reformation was Martin Luther reading Galatians. He was a monk and he was a professor, and as he reads Galatians, he realizes we have drifted from something that is so essential and crucial, and that's exactly the words that Paul was using to the Galatians. Paul gets pretty animated in Galatians in the first part. If you, want to, you should just read the whole book. So that doesn't take too long. He uses nice words like, You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? You've departed from the gospel, the good news. Other people are bringing in false gospels. You have people coming in and saying, You need to go back to trying to obey the law. And the whole the whole issue here for Paul was that Jesus came as a fulfillment of God's intent to bring people into relationship and to bring us back into what it means to become like him. We're in his image and he wants us to be restored to what that really means. And so the giving of the law throughout the Old Testament was never intended to be a way where, okay, here's the law, now try to obey it and we'll see how you grade there was never any sense that you could become in right relationship with God by trying to keep the law on your own. Not only that, but the original intent of the law, like the Ten Commandments, for so many people, so many leaders of, of Judaism at the time of, of Christ had distorted that to the point where they added man-made laws and regulations that instead of being that which would help people flourish, it became a burden that they could never begin to carry 
If you've read some of the Gospels, sometimes Jesus says things that because we don't have our Jewish lenses on, we miss the point. We miss how drastic it is. So for, for a Jew, for especially a Jewish leader, the law, the Torah is everything. It's the wisdom. It's the teachings of God. It's the most sacred object to our senses. And yet, the law, the moral law, had become distorted with 600 other commandments. And it was just a, a horrible burden to bear. And so, you know what Jesus would say to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? He would sometimes go up to them and say, Have you never read? We, we just read over that and we say, Oh, Jesus is, you know, asking them if they've ever read this. No, that's like the biggest insult that they could ever have received because they were the experts. They knew it backwards and forwards. And here's this startup rabbi from the countryside coming in and saying, have you never read? That's how far off. Things like the Sabbath law. The Sabbath was made for us to, to liberate us, to give us rest and places for worship. And, and they had turned that into a bunch of rules and regulations. So here's the point that Paul makes very clearly in his writings. The law of God, think, think Ten Commandments. The law of God is good. The law is good, right? The law teaches us about what God's mind is. It's, it's the value system of God. The law is good, but here's the point. The law cannot make you good. Simple illustration. Let's suppose you have a tendency towards uh, driving too fast and you, uh, you tend to want to whiz through the town and all of a sudden you, you get to the, to the school and it says 20 miles an hour and you whiz by at 50 and the policeman pulls you over and uh, chastises you and gives you a hefty fine because you're in front of a school. Is the, is the law for 20 miles an hour in front of a school good? Is that a good law? Yeah. And, and why is it good? because it's seeking to honor the importance of the lives of children. So for you to just whiz by, you know, having the, the, it might make you fearful, you might be sad that you got a ticket, but can that law make you a better driver in and of itself? Absolutely not. So the law is good, but it can't make you good. So, Paul is saying to the Galatians, here's the problem, here's the danger. You're starting to accept these teachers who have come into your community who are telling you to go back to Sabbath law keeping, to back to kosher laws, get circumcised, all of these different commandments which were never meant to make you right with God. But now you're, it's, it's not just that you're doing something that's futile. By doing it, you're actually rejecting Jesus who set you free from that whole system. Are you with me? So, that's why he's, uh, he's pretty exercised. But there's a, there's a caveat here. Because some people would look at Paul and he says, well, it's good that you have this message of Jesus has set us free and, and we don't have to, to uh, win God's favor by obeying the law, but are you saying that now it doesn't matter what you do? I have a relationship with Jesus. He's accepted me. I'm right before God, so I guess I have the freedom to do whatever I want, right? Paul has a word for that. What? Actually, he says, uh, may it never be. 
God forbid. Have you ever thought about what freedom is? Sometimes in our culture, we treat freedom as if freedom is the right to do whatever you want. I'm free, I can do whatever I want. Is that real freedom? That's the kind of freedom that puts you into addiction and bondage. Real freedom? Freedom is having the power to do what is right. And that only comes from God's grace and God's spirit living within us. As later in chapter 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit. The results of the spirit of God in our lives are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. The very things that the one another's talk about. So liberty isn't license. And so our scripture today basically is, is saying, you know, you are called to freedom, but don't use your freedom. Don't let freedom become a beachhead to, to uh, sort of take advantage of your own proneness. We just sang this a hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Anybody there? Prone to wander. We prone to leave the God I love. That's our nature, is to be prone to wander. So he says, don't let your freedom become a beachhead where that can turn into self-indulgence. Rather, use your freedom to overflow in serving one another. Becoming a follower of Jesus is all about God's grace and undeserved favor. Living out the Christian life, however, is one of gratitude. So I don't seek to please God because maybe he'll like me enough or have enough favor on me to bring me into his family. No, he puts me into his family and then out of gratitude I overflow with obedience and service and love. Are you with me? That's a big difference. And so Paul is very, very adamant about making that clear. So what does it mean to serve one another in love. I want to suggest uh, just three, what I'll call central, crucial, beautiful teachings that come to us in Scripture that I believe are, are very important to grasp and to deepen in order for us to truly serve one another in love. The first one is this. I believe God is saying to us, remember who it is that you're serving. Remember who it is that you're serving. Let's go back to the beginning, Genesis. Remember, Genesis has the, what I call a creation liturgy. It's a, it's a beautiful, poetic description of God's creation. And so after every period of creation, remember what it says? God's evaluation of what he had created? It was good. It was good. He created, and it was good. Created, and it was good. The Hebrew word is tov. Okay, everybody, can everybody say tov? Tov. Then he gets to humankind who he has created in his own, very own image. And his response there is, and it was very good, like super Tov. And, and the cool thing is that Tov doesn't just mean good, it means beautiful. So here we are as God's image bearers. And you know something that, uh, that, that, that really strikes me? What's one thing throughout the entire Bible, all of the law, including the first commandment, it's what makes Judaism and Christianity monotheistic, right? God forbids 
any kind of image. Don't make an image. And yet, what did God do? He created us in the image of God. That fact that God, while condemning idolatry of all kinds, creates human beings and says, you are my image bearer, says all we need to know about the central focus of what it means to be human. The late Pope John Paul II made a wonderful statement in his great work called The Theology of the Body. He basically said something like this. Humanity created in the image of God. You, you cannot understand the nature of what it means to be human apart from our relationship with God. It is God who gives us that place of dignity. So, a starting point for one anothering is recognize that that other person in your life, and every, indeed everyone that you meet, not just the people in your church community, but everyone that you meet, is a sacred human being. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful work, The Weight of Glory, put it this way. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Don't diminish anybody. Everybody has precious, sacred worth. Will that affect how we attend to people? If we grab that more deeply, if that grasps us more deeply, will that affect how we treat one another? I think so. He goes on. Here he, here he gets a little more theological. He says, next to the sacrament of Holy Communion itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way, for in him also Christ's glory himself is truly hidden. Ruminate on that one. In my uh, work as a chaplain, I uh, this year developed a couple of things, a brochure that describes spiritual care at South County Hospital, and I also realized that they, in all of their policy world, they had no up-to-date concept of a, what I would call a spiritual care policy. So right in that policy, the first statement, I basically affirmed that, that part of being a hospital, part of doing spiritual care in a hospital, is acknowledging the sacredness of every human being. I got no pushback. In other words, I, I want to. What I'm trying to emphasize here is that there's something that that's in the air. It's in who we, how we're made. It's in our DNA as human beings, not just Christ followers. That when we talk about ethics, when we talk about the the dignity of all people, there is a resonance there. The person who might be the most, prof most uh, intentional, loud atheist very likely is volunteering for the Special Olympics. 
And if you were to ask, well, gee, atheism would seem to, to diminish the, any value, special value. And, and here's someone who, who's, whose life is, is really disabled. Aren't you sort of diminishing them? And, and they would say, well, no. See, we don't act like we say what we believe. It's like the person, the atheist, who says, you know, I don't believe in God. I say, well, that means absolutely nothing to me. Could you tell me about the God you don't believe in? Because I probably don't believe in that God either. So, we, so there's, there's, an, a, there's a, a sense here that built into the way we're made. We know we're more than, you know, as someone said, you know, um, the product of two lovesick amoeba kicked out of the slimy ocean pit. You know, that, that's just, we know we're more. The other thing, one of the things that I do in the hospital too is uh, when you have new nurses who are coming into the hospital, they do an orientation, right? And so sometimes I'll be able to have just five or ten minutes, and I'll talk with them about spiritual care. And I'll say, so what's your concept of spiritual care? Why is it important? What does that conjure up for you? And what's my role as a chaplain? And what I emphasize is I might be called a spiritual care specialist, but I said you as a nurse, as a provider, are also doing spiritual care or need to be, or need to be very attentive to it. And I give them an example. I said, you're at the end of a shift, and you've just had a really difficult family meeting. And you have another patient that's driving you up the wall, and you are dead tired. And a new patient has just come onto the floor, and you are going to meet them for the first time. When you walk into that room, you will make a decision. Will I be fully present to that person? Will I give them my attention? Will I treat them as the special people that they are? Or will I add to their sense of being dehumanized, which they already feel a bit dehumanized just by being in a Johnny in the, in the bed of the hospital, right? So that whole element of how we view the, the other is, is really pretty central. Second, Another, another way that, we, um, that, I, that I believe we need to grasp more deeply is that our serving one another needs to always be beyond just what we think of as church activities or what we do in the, concept, in the context of worship or of, quote, church activities. What do I mean by that? God is the God of the ordinary. Uh, he, he doesn't make this distinction between your, your work life and your church life or your spiritual life and your physical life. That's a false concept that the Bible pushes back on really, really hard and rightly so. And I think we're seeing, we're seeing growth uh, in that. Living uh, in community and serving others as a community is not something for special times or special people or special places. We are all called. Someone put it this way. The spirituality that I believe is emerging is a spirituality that is charged with living the ordinary life extraordinarily well. One of my favorite poets is Wendell Berry. And uh, he has this great, great line. He says, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. One other quote. He has a whole series of poems. I was raised on a dairy farm, so he, I love Wendell Berry. He's a farmer, 
and uh, he has this series called the Mad Farmer Poems. And one of his poems has this line, by the excellence of his work, the workman is a neighbor. By the excellence of his work, the workman is a neighbor. Simple sentence, but profound. What's he saying? Your neighbor love, remember that passage ends with the whole law can be summed up in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Part of loving your neighbor is doing your work well. We are always in that place of influence. The ethical nature of our work, the quality of our work, the people-centeredness of our work, all of those things are part of the ordinary life. So let's not talk about loving one another and serving one another if it's not happening at the dinner table after a long day. Let's not talk about serving one another if it's not happening in the context of the work. Are you affirming the people that you work with? One of the things that's become evident to me in terms of my chaplaincy is I'm not just there for patients. I'm there for the staff. We've had several deaths of staff members, one of them very tragic, and I was called to be a part of, of just putting on a memorial service in the hospital. And so there's, there's a sense of always coming alongside the staff as they do the hard work of caring for the people. So ask the questions of the people in your ordinary sphere of life. How are you doing? Give them your attention. That leads us to our, our third, third uh, central focus I wanted to touch on. And that's this word, attend. Attend. Uh, when I was at Penn State University, uh, way back, this was actually during the Vietnam War protests. Uh, many of you are only have heard about that in history, but uh, the Vietnam War protests was a pretty, uh, pretty upheaval kind of time for our country. And I can't remember why, but Penn State and many other schools suspended normal classes for three weeks. Just like cut out the normal routine of classwork for three weeks and offered discussion groups, short courses, electives, etc. One of the courses, these mini courses that was offered, was a, a, a course called Attending Skills. Now, what was it? It was a course on how to be a good listener. But they called it Attending Skills because you're attending to the person. It's more than just not talking, right? You've done some work on listening. It's opening up the channels. It's making sure that everything's coming through, non suspending your judgment as the person's talking in order to fully engage in what they're actually saying and feeling. I hate to admit this, but in all of my years at Penn State University, that's the only course I remember. I'm not joking. I've used that material, I've developed that in terms of how you speak with those uh, who are searching and who are outside of, of Christian faith. I've used it in my own personal life uh, as I you know, continually try to, uh, to develop what it means to, to communicate and to be attending to people. So attending skills. Here's one, one um, thing that struck me at, since working in the hospital is what do you call the physician who's responsible for the patient at any given time? 
He's the what physician? The attending physician. There's a, uh, a wonderful doctor named Brian Volk, who is a, uh, a Christian doctor who's worked all around the world in some of the most difficult situations. But he's written a whole book. And what he called his book? Attending. <laughs> That's why I say it's coming at me from all different kinds of directions. Attending. So how do we, uh, how do we attend? One of my definitions, one of the definitions that also I've never forgotten uh, is what's the definition of a servant? We're talking about serving one another. What is a servant? Here's, my, here's the definition that's always stuck with me. Being a servant is getting excited about helping someone else be successful. Being a servant is getting passionately excited about helping someone else be successful, flourish. Not caring who gets the credit, not caring if you're noticed, but actually giving of yourself to make sure that that person is succeeding. It's dying to yourself in order to help others grow. Another attending skill that, um, that we're hearing more about all the time, and that is the concept of story. Story. There's a whole industry, Moth and other, other uh, radio programs and gatherings. People are paying uh, large amounts of money to go and listen to stories. And of course, we read stories. Uh, stories are, are so fascinating in our lives because they tell us. So here's something I've found that I would, I would encourage you with. I find that in almost any setting where I'm meeting with someone, it could be someone I know and they're coming to me for advice. It could be uh, a stranger, like someone I'm actually knocking on the door and going into their room and I'm meeting them for the very first time. But the, but the, uh, the tool, the, the sort of the skill here is simply to ask the question, so tell me your story. So tell me your story. Someone asked me uh, a little while ago, says, so as a chaplain in the hospital, don't you get like turned down a lot? As you know, uh, our country is becoming more vocally irreligious. And so in, in Rhode Island, of course, you have most people, the vast majority of people have some kind of Roman Catholic roots, but that means nothing as to whether or not they're practicing. The second largest descriptor, descriptor of your identity in, as you sign into the hospital at South County, and I'm sure this would be everywhere, the second one is no religion, by far. So, so we're living in, a, in a, what we call the land of the nuns, <laughs> N-O-N-E-S, those who are identifying as nuns. So, so this person is saying, well, you probably get a lot of people who don't want to talk to you, right? I said, in two and a half years, I've had two. Because I don't ask them if they want to talk to me. I just go in and say, hi, I'm the chaplain. Been wanting to meet you. So tell me your story. I don't mean your medical story. You're tired of telling your medical story. Tell me about you. And unless a person is sleeping or you know, needs to do other things, very often that takes on an incredible quick turn. The other thing about attending to people that is not just for someone working in a hospital is that I find that very often at the beginning of the day or sometimes every time I meet a new patient, 
I pray a simple prayer. I call it the, the prayer at the door. <laughs> and the prayer, this simply goes something like this. Lord, I want to be available to be used by you in this person's life any way you choose. I want to be alert to the way in which I could best serve them. I want to be responsive to your spirit. It is incredible how often uh, those, that simple prayer creates in me a receptivity and a desire to serve, as, apart from any sense of just doing a routine visit or asking certain questions. Let me close with a story. I may have shared this with some of you. It's, uh, it's the story of a young woman uh, named, we'll call her Danny. Uh, Danny was a, a patient, a uh, recurring patient in South County. The sad part of this was that she was only 40 years old and she had end-stage lung disease. And um, she was having severe breathing problems and so she came into the hospital and I work with the palliative care team, and this person was flagged as someone who needed to, to consult with the palliative care team, which includes my invitation to, to see them. I put that as a priority of who I will try to see that day. So I walk into to Danny's room. Her parents are there. Uh, I find out that she is a, a waitress, and you can tell she's a good one. She was edgy, she was uh, you know, very friendly, um, and by her identification, she was Roman Catholic, but it became obvious from the parents' comments that they were not practicing any kind of uh, religious practice in a faith community. And so I sat down and introduced myself as the chaplain. The first words out of her mouth was, you should know I'm not very religious. I said, that's okay. Tell me your story. So she begins to talk, talk. And just by sitting there, and sometimes I'll even kneel down on it. If there's no chair, I'll just kneel down at their level and I'll just talk with them. A couple minutes into the conversation, she stops. She says, um, you know, it's, it's not that I don't believe in God. Matter of fact, I talk to God a lot. And I actually have always thought that God must have a, a plan for my life. But I told him, I think this plan really stinks. Actually, she used more colorful language than that. And I said, well, you know, in my heart, I said, well, now we're really, we're really on to something here. And so I, you know, began by saying, I have no claims to understand the mystery and the, and the intensity of what you're going through. But if you would ever like to talk about maybe a different perspective of how God relates to human suffering, I'd love to talk more. She said, I'd really like that. Fast forward, I visited her in a nursing facility. and She came back in two or three times. And one day I walk in, and a family meeting has been scheduled in the ICU. And Danny uh, is there. And this time, uh, Danny is not going to make it. And uh, her family, the head doctor, pulmonologist, nurse, aide, social worker, and the family 
And, uh, and so we gathered around the table. And the, the doctor, who happened to be a Muslim doctor, who is just a wonderfully compassionate man and so skilled in how to help them understand what was happening, affirm their decision to remove the breathing tube, etc., because of the futility, and they could be with her for a period of time and so on. And, um, and afterwards, the, the, the brother sort of broke down, and, and we're just sitting there around the table. And without any sense of awkwardness, I simply said, could I pray for us? And we just joined hands, and we prayed. The family later asked me if I would lead her memorial service, which I did. And, and I, I mention that story because it just reminds me of being attentive of when, we, when we're available, that God is going to open up the ways of serving that most meet the needs of the moment and the people that were there. And those are every person you meet. And if you want to take away, if you want a, a sort of a, a challenge from this message, that challenge doesn't begin right here. That challenge begins the first, with the first person that you meet when you leave this place. The Church of Jesus Christ is designed to be gathered for worship and then scattered to do the work of serving, especially serving one another, but by no means exclusively serving one another. You are in the ordinary, and you are touching people everywhere in places that pastors would never enter, that would never even have an opportunity. You are, you are planted in places that God wants to use your life to serve and to attend, be the hands and feet of Jesus. So as we come to the close of our service, we, we always end in this sacrament called communion. It's that acknowledgement that Christ has set us free. Set us free to love him, to obey him, and to serve him and others. It's a way of remembering what he has done, and the response for us is one of gratitude. So this can actually be the place where you say yes to the love of Jesus. Yes, I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. I can't make myself good. I accept what you have done in dying on the cross, of being raised again from the dead. That is what brings us into communion with God. Every time we take the bread and dip it in the cup and eat it, we're reminded that God is for us and God is with us and he invites us to his table so as we hear music as we as we're reflective and, and how God is speaking to us we invite you all to come you can just come up the center aisle as you're ready and uh, the communion servers will be up here uh, they'll all be in the front uh, there are those there's a prayer team over here a couple of folks who just able to to briefly pray with you over anything that you might have a concern about so if you'd like to uh, pray with someone you can just sort of get in this side of the line and, and be served here and, and pray uh, otherwise anyone along the front here so let's pray together as we come
Lord, on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it. You said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, you took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So Lord, thank you for your grace, for your salvation, for your invitation. And so we come saying yes to you, that we might in gratitude turn around and be scattered to those places where we overflow with that gratitude and service to the precious people you put into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.